Well, it was just Wednesday night. Seemed like a long time ago if you say it was Wednesday night, but it seems like just last night. Time has flown so fast. Um, it's always a little bit uh, bittersweet to get to this point. <clears throat> the very last, uh, the last message, meaning that this is coming to a conclusion. Now, White counsels us that the closer we get to that day, that we should even more often uh, come together to encourage each other. And uh, just so thankful that despite COVID, that we've been able to do that here in Battle Creek. And so again, just like to thank all of you who are members here or in this community, Pastor Rob, everybody involved to open up the, this very historic church. Um, Anya and I started walking around looking at the windows and there's windows just dedicated to the pioneers that are the names that founded this church. And so it's just an amazing experience. So again, just thank you. Um, we will um, hope that uh, we can meet together face-to-face -face, uh, much sooner. And those of you who couldn't be with us in person but have joined us online, we're going to miss you as well. It's been a wonderful uh, three days uh, spent together in fellowship. Well, tonight, before we begin the sermon entitled The Hour of His Judgment, I'm just going to kneel and let's just pray and ask the Lord to be here. Well, Father in heaven, we just wish to thank you for the inspiring messages that we have heard over these past three days. And we pray that this can be more than just inspiration, but something that we can take uh, deep inside to our hearts, um, that as we go back to our home churches, <coughs> as we, uh, wherever we are tuning in from around the world online, that we will be inspired to uh, make this message um, that we have heard intensely practical in our day-to-day -day lives. Teach us how to sensitively reach people around us. Tonight, as we open your word, just pray that your Holy Spirit can speak to each of our hearts and uh, that you can inspire my lips, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to... Uh, three passages that we're going to read very quickly just to set the stage. Passages that should be familiar to all of you. But we'll start with Daniel. <coughs> Daniel chapter 7. And uh, we'll begin reading with verse 9. I watched till thrones were put in place and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow. His hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousand ministered to him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. And the court was seated, and the books were opened. <clears throat> Turning over to Revelation 14.6, a similar passage that uh, we have talked about and looked at many times over the last three days. Um, but Revelation 14, 6, I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having an everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. 
And then let's look over at Ecclesiastes um, 12. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 14. So Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes 12, verse 14. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether it is good or whether it is evil. So, are these passages good news? Or do they leave you just a little bit unsettled? I don't know about you, but as a kid growing up as a Seventh-day Adventist, I used to have nightmares about the judgment. Anybody relate to that? Literally, I would wake up in the middle of the night panicked, wondering about, did I really confess every sin before I went to bed? And I would, in, I would go to bed every night saying, please, dear Lord, forgive me of everything I could think of and would also just throw in there anything else I might have done and didn't know so that at least if I went to bed and I didn't wake up and my name came up in those books when they were open, that I would be ready. But you'd still worry. What about if I was at school and suddenly there was a disaster? What about if I was driving in the car and I'd been thinking something bad at that very moment when my life uh, was snuffed out? It left me feeling very insecure. And uh, I know many other Adventists I've talked to who grew up in the era that I grew up with um, felt the very same thing. Fortunately, um, after learning this message, um, I stopped having those dreams and start having more assurance until about three years ago. Three years ago, <laughs> I started having not nightmares, but I would wake up in the middle of the night and have my mind racing because of judgment. Not God's judgment. You see, about three years ago, I got served notification that I was being sued. The thing that every physician dreads the very most um, is uh, being dragged into court. And uh, we felt that our case was strong and there uh, was no way that this was going to be settled. And so for three years waiting to go to court, this is hanging over your head. And for a while, I was able to dismiss it out of my mind, but the closer it got, the more it weighed. And I would wake up, and sometimes for an hour or two in the middle of the night, I would just be rehearsing the case and rehearsing the details and just live with a sense of impending doom or anxiety, knowing that your fate is going to be in the hands of a jury. And so... It was originally set for October, or actually it was originally set for May 2019, and then it got moved to October. And then in October it got moved to November. And so this just happened um, no, uh, November this past year. And uh, it's always a sad situation when a patient dies. Um, what made this even sadder is that this was a friend of my partner. His children and the patient's children went to the same school. They were in the same class. And so as a favor to him, he was trying to help this gentleman um, who had severe pain in his spine 
and uh, muscle weakness. Uh, he needed to go through spine surgery. And so my partner uh, was helping with his heart issues. He also had pretty extensive heart disease. And so um, I got involved because he just, my partner just asked, hey, can you do a heart cath on him? Just see if there's anything we're missing or anything we can do. And I did a heart catheterization. It's the only time I saw him um, for the procedure and uh, performed the procedure. He did have some pretty extensive disease, but uh, I was convinced that there wasn't anything I was gonna be able to do with a stent or anything that heart surgery was gonna fix because the disease was extensive. He was diabetic and the arteries were very, very small and very diffuse. And so it was best to treat it with medicines. And he had been pretty optimized. He was functional. And so we really thought that he um, would do, have a pretty good chance of doing okay through surgery. So about a couple weeks later, he underwent the surgery. Um, both my partner Harvey and I were at a conference um, in uh, North Carolina or South Carolina at the time and uh, got the call that uh, there were a lot of complications during surgery. What should have taken two hours wound up taking eight hours, um, eight and a half hours. Um, he got a lot of fluids during that time and wound up going into congestive heart failure. And uh, later that evening, he actually coded, arrested, and died. Very sad situation. Um, the focus of the suit was actually on my partner. Um, the surgeon and the anesthesiologist blamed the heart doctor because they said, oh, this was a heart problem, even though there were all kinds of complications. And so I got added on because I did the cardiac cath. And uh, yes, over two years, the three years of waiting, it would just be pressing on me. And uh, you know, it seems like if we could have just sat down and had a conversation about it, the facts of the case would have easily resolved the issues. Um, the family, you would think, would be okay with the explanation, but um, that's really not what happened. So Jesus in John chapter 8, verse 32 says, You shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And you get into the court, and you hold up your right hand and you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And uh, you very quickly realize, though, that the plaintiff's attorney isn't looking for truth. He didn't bring out the fact that the next surgery that I had nothing to do with, that normally takes two hours, took over eight and a half hours, that there were complications, um, that, there had, uh, that there was a collapse of the lung in the middle of the case, that he had to, the surgeon had to go out and get a breathing treatment in the middle of the case, um, that there were obviously difficulties, and somehow that wasn't included. They ignore the unfavorable facts, and they look for every little discrepancy in the record to make you look bad. Everything is scrutinized and exposed in the worst possible light. Several times, especially for my partner, his words were twisted against him. And they don't ask you, uh, Dr. Schwartz, please explain what you were doing or please explain this part of the procedure. They try to put words in your mouth. Isn't it true, Dr. Schwartz, that this was a very severe disease? Isn't it true that, uh, th that this could lead to a heart attack? Isn't it true that you didn't even bother to get a heart surgeon to see him? And uh, they don't ask you to explain. 
They are looking for yes and no questions that they can paint you in the picture that they want to paint you in. And uh, fortunately, I avoided that trap of getting words put in my mouth, but it was very easy to do. They lined up five doctors from all over the country, Arizona, Missouri, um, Pennsylvania, and paid them over $800 an hour to come in, plus their expenses, to come in and testify. We're not highly recognized, but just people that they could pay to speak against me. You know, Jesus, let's turn over to Luke chapter um, 11, um, 52 to 54. He experienced this several times. So Luke chapter 11, 52. He says, Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter into your, in yourselves, and those um, who were entering in you hindered. And as he said these things to them, the scribes and the Pharisees begin to assail him vehemently and to cross-examine him about many things, lying in wait for him and seeking to catch him in something he might say that they might accuse him. That's how this felt. Jesus understood because everything that Jesus was saying was being watched and listened to. And they would ask leading questions and trick questions to try to trip Jesus up. Jesus was cross-examined several times. Another story that we're all familiar with in John chapter 8 is about the woman caught in adultery. And we can turn over to there as well, John chapter 8, verse 3. But the scribes and the Pharisees, they brought this woman that was taken in adultery um, and set her in the midst of Jesus. And, said Jesus. and they said to him, this woman has been taken in adultery in the very act in the law of Moses, commanded us to stone her. What then sayest thou of her? In this they said, trying him, that they might have whereof to accuse him. Now realize from the story, they don't actually care about the woman. They are using the woman to get to who? Jesus. They don't care about the woman. They're trying to trip up Jesus because he's going to be in trouble one way or the other. And so... But Jesus, as we know, stoops in the sand and he begins writing, writing the sins of those who were accusing her. And finally, when no one was left there and Jesus lifted himself up in verse 10, he said, woman, where are they? Did no man condemn thee? And she said, no man, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go thy way from henceforth sin no more. So although Jesus was the one that they were trying to get to, we also see some principles about judgment right here in this story. It's not Jesus who is digging up the dirt on anybody. And like the woman who was caught in the adultery, we are just pawns caught up in this controversy by no choice of our own. We have been dragged into this because it's really the hour of his judgment. He's the one that's on trial. He's the one that Satan is trying to bring down, and he attacks us to get to God. If someone attacks your children, would that be much harder on you than if they attacked you yourself? I think every parent would say absolutely. Jesus says some interesting things about judgment. 
in John chapter 5, um, verse 22. He says, the father judges no one, but he's committed all judgment to the son. But then over in John 8, 15, in the story that we were just looking at, he says, you judge according to the flesh, but I judge no one. And so what's going on here? Jesus continues um, in John um, chapter 12, verse 46, to explain a little bit more about judgment. I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him, for I did not come to the world I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my word has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. God isn't in the business of digging up the dirt on each of us. He is in the business of revealing truth. In the truth does reveal the truth. And so, ultimately, in God's heavenly court of law, it's all about the truth, which is different than our courts of law. Well, Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, does say that there is somebody who's digging up the dirt. And we all know that. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. Who is the adversary? Who is the one that is going around digging up the dirt and accusing God's people? It's Satan. Just because he wants to make God look bad. Now we live in a world that really doesn't care much about truth. Our world today especially is like what Pilate said. What is truth? We live in a world where up is down and down is up. Isaiah 50 verse 20 said, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. All Ten Commandments in our culture today are under attack, but especially the first four. No other gods? Well, there's a lot of things that we worship. No graven images? Don't take the Lord's name in vain. There's not a day that goes by, and I work in a Christian hospital where I don't hear somebody taking the Lord's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath? That's completely forgotten and disregarded in our culture. But so is honor your parents. There's no respect for parents, no respect for authority. Murder is laughed at and made light of in the media. Adultery is now just commonplace. Stealing, false witnesses, coveting. This has just become common. We live in a culture where everything is upside down. So, abortion is considered normal. 
human theory in the evolution, so-called science, um, is worshipped in place of God. Even those who don't believe in God um, seem to blame everything on him. Acts of God, every bad thing that happens in our world, hurricanes, earthquakes, COVID, is blamed on God. By the way, I believe that the devil can invent and can create viruses. You can't create living things, but a virus is not alive on its own. It needs a host. And yet God gets the blame. Everything is turned 180 degrees. We think we live in a Christian nation, but we're like the frog that has found itself in boiling water and doesn't know how it got there. We have grown comfortable with this. What used to be considered the rainbow of promise now stands for the rainbow of acceptance of gender. Everything that from God's word has been stood on its head. And so what is the solution? It's the judgment hour message. God prepared three messages for our world that calls them to be prepared for judgment and to come apart from this system of our world. Ellen White in Christ Object Lessons, page 415, 415, states, Behold, says the scriptures, the darkness shall cover the earth and gross darkness the people. But the Lord shall arise upon thee and his glory shall be seen upon thee. Quoting Isaiah 60, verse 2. It is the darkness of misapprehension of God that is enshrouding the world. Men are losing their knowledge of his character. It has been misunderstood and misinterpreted. At this time, a message from God is to be proclaimed, a message illuminating in its influence and saving in its power. His character is to be made known. Into the darkness of the world is to be shed the light of his glory, the light of his goodness, mercy, and truth. That quote sounds like it is midnight in our world. And it's time for a most precious message. God's not caused by, caught by surprise. What about our case in the heavenly sanctuary? Because obviously it says the books are open. Obviously it says God's going to bring every sin into the light. How do we stand in this? But we have the wrong picture. We have our modern picture of this adversarial relationship. But if we are in Christ, the tables are turned in the investigative judgment. It's actually us who have a case to bring about to regarding Satan, the deceiver. Like David, we should be pleading our case, calling for vindication from the false charges that our accuser, the devil, has made against us. The outcome of our case is already known. It's certain. Our attorney has never lost a case. And in the biblical view, the judgment is actually good news. Not only is Jesus the judge, but he's also our defense attorney. And he has already paid the price. The message of judgment, the hour of judgment, is the hour of deliverance. And there's no better place to see this than back in the book of Judges. And you can turn back to the book of Judges, but the whole book of Judges is about the up and down history of God's people. 
And you can see this over and over and over, but just as a couple examples, Judges chapter 2, verse 16, the Lord raised up judges who did what? Condemned God's people? No, they delivered God's people. The Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. And yet they would not listen to their judges. And they played the harlot with other gods and bowed down to them. And they turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. So over and over, they would find themselves enslaved. They would find themselves overrun. And they would turn back to God. And God would raise up a judge like Gideon and his 300. In Judges 3, 9 through 10, when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the children of Israel who delivered them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. So over and over, God would raise up a judge. And this process, sadly, would repeat over and over and over again. The children of Israel were meant to be a kingdom of priests. This light on the hill that God could hold up to the whole rest of the world about, as an example of what it would be to be a blessed and chosen people. And yet, their history is instead a history of turning from God over and over and over. But David... In Psalm 7, verse 8, says, Judge me, O Lord, according to your righteousness, but establish the justice. In Psalms 22, 6, he says, Vindicate me. In Psalms 33, he says, Vindicate me from my enemies. And in Psalms 43, verse 1, he says, Vindicate me and plead my case. It's like David was saying, Lord, I can't wait for the judgment. Lord, please bring the judgment. Deliver me from my adversaries. In Psalms 96, 11, it says, Let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be clad. Let the sea roar in all of its fullness. Let the field be joyful and all that is in it. Then all the trees of the woods will rejoice before the Lord, for he is coming. He is coming to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with truth. If we are the Lord's, we do not need to fear the judgment. Testimonies to Ministers, page 523, states that we should remember that the church, enfeebled and defective though it be, is the object on earth on which Christ bestows his supreme regard. He is constantly watching it with solicitude and is strengthening it by his Holy Spirit. When you stand for truth, when you stand for righteousness, you have nothing to fear in the judgment. But when you stand for truth and you stand for righteousness, this world's not going to tolerate us very long. Another example of God's picture of judgment is in Zechariah 3, verses 1 and 2. And he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. Joshua, the priest, is standing here. Satan is right beside him, opposing him. 
He's the accuser. He's the adversary. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord has chosen Jerusalem. Rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? That will be true of every one of God's saints. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? God will defend his church and God will defend his people. The reality is now we have a case against the devil and we should be pleading to bring it to a speedy end. Steps to Christ, page 62. If you give yourself to him and accept him as your savior, then sinful as your life may have been, for his sake you are accounted righteous. Christ's character stands in place of your character and you are accepted before God just as if you had not sinned. God's truth exposes righteousness and if we are in Christ by the faith of Jesus, we stand righteous. We have nothing to fear for the judgment. Let's turn over to that judgment scene again in Daniel. Daniel chapter 7. And this time let's go to verse uh, 21. Daniel 7, 21, I was watching in that same horn, this little horn that has been oppressing God's people, that same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them until what? Until God came to their rescue. The ancient of days came and judgment was made in favor of the saints. Why do we fear the judgment when we already know the outcome? God has made the judgment in favor of the saints. In the saints of the Most High, and the time came for them, for the saints, to possess the kingdom. The judgment isn't about us. We aren't the main focus. We're not really the ones on trial. It's not about us. The devil accuses us because ultimately, he wants to get to God. Our case is already certain. We know the outcome. What about my case? My case finally went to trial in the first weeks of November. There was 140 potential jurors in the room. And you look at these people and you think, boy, these are the ones that are going to try my case. And they quickly realized that this wasn't going to be an ordinary case. This was going to go on potentially two weeks. And suddenly everybody was trying to come up with an excuse how to get off that jury. And you're left with not the seven or eight people that you thought looked very intelligent, <laughs> not the, the ones that actually worked in healthcare. They were long gone. You were walked, left with the ones that didn't have a good excuse to get out of that jury pool and the ones that were looking down the whole time and they would never make eye contact and they never smiled. And they looked stone-faced for the next seven days straight without ever looking my way. And oh boy, for the whole next six days, I watched every one of them intently, hoping to even make a little bit of eye contact. 
they did their job. So miraculously, there were four miracles that happened that actually we thought was providential. I don't have time to go into them right now. Uh, my partner, Dr. Hahn, is going to be sharing his testimony about this case because for him, it was the most faith-building experience he has gone through. He didn't think this at the time. <laughs> but there were miracle after miracle how God helped in the case. For a moment, I had thought about just getting my own attorney because I thought my case was simple. I just did one small thing, and yet I was dragged into it. And so I figured if I had my own attorney, I would get let go. Um, but somehow the Lord impressed me that, no, nope, stick to the same attorney that's representing both of us. And that turned out to be providential. But the big thing that happened was we were supposed to have the case in May. It got moved to October, and then it got moved to November. And we were making the argument that treating people medically is actually as effective, if not more effective, for preventing heart attacks and strokes um, than putting somebody through surgery when they've got a normal pumping function and they're not having symptoms of angina in their heart. And this is recognized in academic centers as being the truth, but it's not what's practiced in the day-to-day -day aspects of cardiology where if you anybody even sees something tight, they're going to try to throw a stent in there because they get paid to do that. Well, it turns out that they dragged five witnesses in. Five witnesses. And they all testified rather pompously about, oh, yes, I certainly would have recommended bypass for this surgery. And if I could have easily put four bypasses on him, and he would have done fine through surgery if we've done that let alone the fact that there's a 3 to 5% complication rate with bypass surgery. could have just as easily died then. And so it became time for my attorneys now to start cross-examining their witnesses. And these rather arrogant witnesses being paid $800 an hour to say <clears throat> what would make us look bad. One of my attorneys who looked like Matlock his name was Jerry. He got up in front of the surgeon who was just very sure of himself, who was sitting upright in his chair. And he just said, Dr. So-and-so, we've never met. My name is Jerry, but this is an adversarial process. You have made some rather bold assumptions, and now I am going to test those. And about 40 minutes later, this rather pompous surgeon was sitting back in the corner actually cowering because the assumptions he made could not stand up to the truth in the literature. And he didn't know it, and he was made to look rather stupid. Truth wins out in the end. So the first four days was examining their case. By Friday, they rested. Monday... Dr. Hahn, my partner, got to, on the stand. Then our expert witness, we had five lined up. We only wound up using one, um, who is from the University of Michigan and is probably the world's top expert on risk of going through surgery. Had just gotten back from the American Heart Association meetings that were occurring that very weekend in Philadelphia where he was the lead presenter on the, or on the panel where, the, where this major clinical trial that has been going on for the last seven years 
was released that very weekend. It's called the ischemia trial. And the headlines just blazed over the weekend. Medical therapy is superior to surgery. I mean, there were little trials that we already knew that made this case, but this was the largest trial ever made. That was another amazing miracle. And the plaintiff's attorney tried to get that suppressed, wanted to make sure the paper couldn't be brought in and that our witness could not refer to anything about that trial. And he got it suppressed. It later came out when he cross-examined me because he asked me a question about it and then he couldn't suppress it. So then I was on the stand for four hours. Point by point by point going through the facts of the case with my attorney who brought me right down in front of the jury this far away from them looking at every one of them in the eye as I was explaining things on the screen and I could tell that we were connecting. Able to tell my story. And so after that, we canceled our next four witnesses and it went to the jury. At noon on Tuesday, it went to the jury. On Wednesday, it went to the jury. Right at noon, so we broke for lunch. We went to a restaurant. I tried to eat. I wasn't hungry. It took about an hour and 15 minutes and then finally got a text message that the jury is back and they've reached a verdict. That hour and 15 minutes seemed like eternity. So you walk back into the court. You are very nervous. You think you've made your case, but it's in these hands of these eight people that up until now hadn't been showing what they were thinking. Judge walks in and the say all rise. Everybody stands except the judge who's seated. And she turns to the jury and says, have you reached a verdict? We have, Your Honor. So the bailiff gets up and walks over to the jury foreman and takes an envelope that has been sealed. Two envelopes, one for me, one for my partner. Takes it to the judge who breaks the seal and opens opens the scroll, so to speak, and reads while you're sitting there waiting. Fortunately for us, the judge read, we, the jury, find in favor of the defendants. No greater relief can come across you when you've been through that process. And amazingly, we had the opportunity to go meet the jury afterwards. And they were laughing, and they said, oh, Dr. Schwartz, we, 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 didn't, we thought you didn't just do the standard of care. You went way beyond the standard of care. And Dr. Schwartz, when you were on the stand, you talked about how it's really beneficial to be on a plant-based diet. I was witnessing to the jury. And uh, so we want you to see, we got vegetarian pizza. We're not eating meat. And Dr. Schwartz, we want you to know we actually came into this box and within five minutes we voted and we, we thought you, what you did was, was excellent care. It was really a vindication. And so, the Bible says that's the hour of his judgment. 
Is God also on trial? Now, I know theologians and will say that, you know, as finite beings, we can't judge God. And there's a very true sense to that. As an infinite being, we can't look down on God and make an ultimate decision. But there is a sense in which God has allowed himself to be judged amongst the whole universe. And it seems his case hasn't gone as well as mine. It seems he can't get the jury to end their deliberations. He still can't get a verdict. First Corinthians 6 verse 3 says, Do you know that we shall judge angels? And Daniel 8.14 says, For unto 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Why would God submit to such a trial? God believes in truth, in righteousness. He knows that when his witnesses take the stand, truth will be told. It will dispel the devil's lies. The whole world will be watching. He says, you are my witnesses. And yet, in actually in Romans chapter 5, a text I read two uh, days ago, Romans chapter 3, verse 4, it says that you may be justified in your words and you may overcome when you are judged. Speaking of God. Well, what's happened since 1844? Ellen White states, and she wrote this in 1863, had Adventists, after the great disappointment in 1844, held fast their faith and followed on unitedly in, in the opening providences of God, receiving the message of the third angel and in the power of the Holy Spirit proclaiming it to the world, they would have seen the salvation of God the Lord would have wrought mightily with their efforts. The work would have been completed and Christ would have come ere this to receive his people to their reward. But in the period of doubt and uncertainty that followed the disappointment, many of the Advent believers yielded their faith. Thus the work was hindered and the world was left in darkness. Had the whole Adventist body united upon the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus, how widely different would have been our history. In 1863, she stated, we could have been in the kingdom ere this. God can't seem to get his witnesses lined up. So if we wandered in the wilderness just as the children of Israel would not listen to Caleb and Joshua and had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, it would be roughly another 40 years before God comes back with the Holy Spirit to prepare his witnesses. And this time in 1901, Ellen White states, we may have to remain here in this world because of insubordination many more years, as did the children of Israel. 
But for Christ's sake, his people should not add sin to sin by charging God with the consequences of their own wrong course of action. There is a, this idea out there in Adventism that God has some magical time frame out there that only he knows. And after all, a day is as a year for him, so this is no big deal if it drags out a little while. And when he's ready, and when the world events line up, this is going to come to a conclusion. But the reality is that God is waiting for his witnesses to take the stand. The prophet's voice was silenced on July 16, 1815. I just drove by her grave this afternoon, right here in Battle Creek. But based on the pattern of the Exodus, and based on a series of sermons that a pastor from this very church, Taylor Bunch, he gave a series of sermons here in the Battle Creek Tabernacle about the Exodus in type, in anti-type, as he made the argument another 40 years later in the 1920s that we have repeated the history of the Jews in not crossing over to the promised land. It seems that every 40 years there's another generation. Every 40 years God raises up a message, the most precious message it comes with a call of repentance and a message of the righteousness of Christ. And for five generations now, God's people have refused to take the stand. Daniel chapter 7 verse 26 says that the court shall be seated and they shall take away his dominion to consume and to destroy it forever and then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people and the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Isaiah 44 verse 8 says, Have I not told you from that time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Where are God's modern-day witnesses? Is he worthy? Will we testify to the world around us? Who will stand in God's defense? That is why God has raised up this last-day church. In Malachi, he says, I behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant to whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. When Jesus came to this world the first time, did he have a forerunner? Malachi calls him Elijah the prophet, but we know that it was John the Baptist with the Elijah message. James 5, 7 talks about how Elijah, seeing the apostasy in the land, prayed for no rain. There's no mention of the fact that God told Elijah to do that. 
Elijah, being a person of discerning faith, saw the need to call God's people, and so he prayed that there would not be any rain. And then he brought God's people to a decision point, and he prayed that there would be rain. God's end-time people are the Elijahs. Seventh-day Adventism wasn't raised up to be another congregation that should go on generation after generation after generation like the other churches. This was raised up to be a prophetic end-time message that gave the three angels messages that calls God's people from wherever they are in the world, whatever religion they are, to be prepared for the judgment that's to come, to come and separate from Babylon because it's falling, and to not receive the mark that symbolizes your final, once and for all, sealed decision, the mark of the beast, and instead receive the seal of the living God. Ellen White in Evangelism, page 120, states, the most solemn truths ever entrusted to mortals have been given to us to proclaim to the world. Really? The most solemn truths. You mean to tell me the messages that we are to give this world are more solemn than what Moses, the lawgiver, wrote? More solemn than what John, the revelator, wrote? This is serious business. The proclamation of these truths is to be our work. The world is to be warned and God's people are to be the true to the true true to the trust committed to them. We have been entrusted with witnessing for God to reveal the truth about his character. In evangelism page 119 paragraph 3 in a special sense Seventh-day Adventists have been set in the world as watchmen and light bearers. To them has been entrusted the last warning for a perishing world. On them is shining wonderful light from the word of God. They have been given a work of the most solemn import, the proclamation of the first, second, and third angel's messages. There is no other work of so great importance they are to allow nothing else to absorb their attention. Cancer research is not more important than being absorbed by the three angels' messages. Being caught up in politics is not worth missing this opportunity to give the three angels' messages. Not trying to figure out the seven trumpets is as important as the three angels' messages. This is our work. Ellen White, first selected messages, page 124. There is nothing that Satan fears so much as that the people of God shall clear the way by removing every hindrance so that the Lord can pour out his spirit upon a languishing church in an impenitent congregation. If Satan had his way, there would never be another awakening, great or small, to the end of time. But we are not ignorant of his devices. It is possible to resist his power. When the way is prepared for the Spirit of God, the blessing will come. 
Satan can no more hinder a shower of blessings from descending upon God's people than he can close the windows of heaven that rain cannot come upon the earth. Wicked men and devils cannot hinder the work of God or shut out his presence from the assemblies of his people if they will when subdued in contrite hearts confess and put away their sins and in faith claim his promises. God is calling us to a work of repentance. He is calling us to a sacred responsibility that is an honor that is greater than what Moses was called to. An honor greater than John the Baptist received. An honor greater than John the Revelator. To be his final witnesses. Every temptation, every opposing influence, every, whether open or secret, may be successfully resisted. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Zechariah 4.6. That's first selected messages, page 124. God has done everything possible to assure our standing in Christ. He has died for us. He has given us his son. He has defended us above his own honor. Our victory is sure. But to bring this to a conclusion, he awaits a response. Let's turn over to Revelation chapter 5 as we close. We are the ones who have the opportunity to win this war. There are no more time prophecies. It's not waiting for the world events to line up. That has happened time and time again. What it's waiting for is God's people to see the Lamb. Revelation chapter 4 talks about this throne room in heaven where this one who sat there has, was like jasper and sardis stones in appearance. And he was on a throne with a rainbow around it. And he had the appearance like an emerald. But chapter 5 says, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on that throne a scroll, written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? Who is worthy? And no one in heaven or in the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll and to look at it. But, one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, and in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders, 
stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the scroll out of the hand of him who sat on the throne. And when the four living creatures and the 24 elders saw this, they fell down before the lamb and they sang a song you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. You have redeemed us to God by your blood. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, we and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. It seems that the whole heavenly universe is convinced that Jesus is worthy. But it's like David, when he had to flee from Absalom, all of Israel was calling for him to come back except for his closest, nearest kin. What about us? Are we willing to sing that you are worthy to open the scroll? Worthy is the lamb that was slain Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne. We're the ones who end the war. Revelation 13.4 says that there was this war and all the world marveled and followed the beast and they worshiped the dragon who gave him authority and who is able to make war with him. And Revelation 12.11 says, and they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. It is in our power right now to be that final generation. God is calling for his nearest of kin to welcome him to that rightful position. And if you want to be part of that last day, people, I invite you to stand as we pray. Father in heaven, for 6,000 years, this world has been in turmoil. And Jesus defeated the devil at the cross, but his honor and vindication is still remains to be seen in front of our world. You have called us to be witnesses you have called us and given us the honor to be that final blessed generation that stands, in the, in, stands for truth and vindicates your name. May we be a part, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.